Talking about Ukraine. In reality, the centuries of statelessness and the fight for statehood the Ukrainians had to put up actually shaped them into who they are. Indonesia and ASEAN. The addition of East Timor to the ASEAN collection of states in Southeast Asia is going to be an interesting one to watch for. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASVI podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. As we approach one year since Russia's February invasion of Ukraine, Justin Bassey speaks to historian and writer Alessia Krumichuk. They discuss the resilience of the Ukrainian people, Alessia's personal experience with conflict, and what's at stake for the international community in the ongoing war against Ukraine. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to be joined today on the Aspie podcast by Ukrainian writer and historian Alessia Krumichuk. Alessia is the director of the Ukrainian Institute London, which is an independent charity dedicated to raising awareness of Ukraine in the West. She's a prominent voice amongst those trying to ensure the rest of the world doesn't lose sight of Russia's war against Ukraine, and that's the motivation behind her speaking to her here in Australia. We're very lucky to have her insights and expertise here today. Alessia, thanks very much for coming on the Aspie podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, and thank you for talking about Ukraine. Lovely. Well, we're approaching a year into Russia's full-scale war on Ukraine, yet most observers a year ago were predicting a swift Russian victory. Few people would dispute that the Ukrainian people have shown remarkable resolve. Could you explain where that resolve comes from? Is it leadership? Is it a historical sense of sovereignty and independence? And why did so many people make so many incorrect forecasts? Thank you for that question. It was interesting to observe how Ukraine surprised the world with its defiance. Uh, and it was it was sort of nice to see that, you know, so many people admired Ukrainians for their courage. At the same time, I found it a little bit unnerving because it sort of implied that somehow Ukrainians woke up on the 24th of February feeling defiant or courageous. Um, believe me, nobody wants to be courageous uh, facing uh, the enemy. Nobody wants to be in that situation, right? Be, having to be courageous, having to show defiance uh, was uh, was an act of necessity. And partly it was so because Ukraine has been underestimated internationally and was given 72 hours to a week to stand ground and was not provided with necessary weaponry, with the necessary provisions and so on. So in many cases, Ukrainian civilians facing the Russian troops had nothing but a flag and their defiance. And that's what they used, um, which was absolutely heartbreaking to see. But it also, you know, it also allowed the world to discover this nation's um, resolve when it comes to being threatened by the occupying force. Uh, The origin of it is a very good question. We so often uh, equate strength and power of different states with statehood with um, a prolonged statehood, which, to be fair, often comes with baggage of imperialism. Um, Nevertheless, you know, for us, uh, so-called ahistorical nations are perceived as weaker on the international stage. And Ukraine regained its independence only just over 30 years ago. So it was very much perceived as a young state, not to be maybe trusted, uh, not to be necessarily taken uh, seriously and, uh, and so on. And I think that had a very... 
profound effect on how it was misunderstood. Also, it was uh, portrayed as a, a state with no clear sense of identity by uh, Russian propaganda. And a lot of us around the world um, accepted that portrayal and it penetrated our perception of the country too. In reality, the centuries of statelessness and the fight for statehood the Ukrainians had to put up actually shaped them into who they are. They shape them into the people who value statehood because they understand that it translates into the rule of law and the rule of law translates into protection of human rights. And they value it because it allows them to practice their self-determination. And it also means that they've developed this um, very powerful civic nationalism, um, political nationalism. It's a, it's a nation where Crimean Tatars, Roma, Jews, um, Ukrainians, uh, ethnic Russians, uh, regardless of the language that they speak, come together in times of trouble to defend each other and therefore their own rights. Also, a very good question on leadership. So, of course, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has become probably one of the most recognizable figures in the world for very good reason, too. But I like the way he's been described sometimes as the amplifier in chief. Uh, this is a man who understands what the society is expecting from him uh, and he delivers and he, he delivered it uh, on the 24th of February and has been delivering since. Um, I would suggest that that's the way, uh, that's the, the way it works. Uh, he knows that Ukrainians expect him to show courage, to show resolve and that is what he does and also of course that then in turn inspires uh, the rest of the population too and international leaders leadership as well. That's very good. And talking about inspiring your, uh, for people who've read your book and writing, you uh, obviously uh, know your history as a historian, but uh, such a powerful form of writing as well. Uh, your phrases are very influential uh, and inspire um, many people to understand more of what's going on. The, the phrase that uh, many Ukrainians said, nothing but a flag and defiance uh, sums it up very, very well. As mentioned at the top, you're here in Australia to help keep Ukraine front of mind for Australians. Uh, many of our Australian listeners will be interested in why you think Australia is important as an active supporter of Ukraine and how you judge the risk of war dropping down the global agenda. Yeah, what we need to understand wherever we are in the world is that the bombs are targeting Ukrainian people, the citizens of Ukraine. But this war is about more than that. It's against the democratic order. It's against um, uh, the order that we used to live in. It, it's against our values, the values of democracy, the values of protection of human rights and so on. So if an aggressor such as Russia is allowed to get away with its aggression, is allowed to benefit from the perpetration of war crimes, uh, from violation of international law, we are all going to find ourselves uh, in, in the world uh, that is going to be very frightening for all of us, wherever we are in a democratic world. And it's also going to be the sort of, you know, that could potentially lead to the situation when where other authoritarian regimes will feel even more emboldened in their respective contexts. So this is our shared war, and that's why I think it's really, really important for everybody in the democratic world to ensure to be as invested in Ukrainian victory as Ukrainians are. And so plenty of Australians might think that our support is very good as a matter of principle, consistent with what you've said and uh, important to show our moral support. But 
they might feel that our contribution is never going to be decisive uh, on the result, uh, either on the battlefield or in helping to change the narrative. What's your view on that and how important is Australia's direct contribution? Don't get me wrong, moral support is important too. Symbolic support is important too. But whenever I travel around the world, I see Ukrainian flags on official buildings, which is lovely. But when I see them in residential houses, just in windows, it really warms my heart. It makes me feel like people care. And knowing that people care, especially if you're stuck in a bomb shelter with, um, and that's obviously not my experience, but that's the experience of so many Ukrainians at the moment, you know, with constant bombardment, with no electricity supply, um, because Russia is targeting critical infrastructure daily at the moment everywhere across the country, knowing that the world cares means a lot. So I don't want to underestimate uh, that part of support as well. But um, as Ukrainians are saying at the moment, the best humanitarian aid is military aid right now. And that's something we really need to understand because uh, military support for Ukrainians, arming them to the point where they can defend themselves, first of all, immediately now, but also from what we know is likely to be a renewed offensive any day soon, and then liberate the territories that are being currently occupied and allow people in those occupied territories to regain some sort of sense of of, of life and not live in absolute hell, as we know from the liberated territories already, what the reality is like for those people. Um, you know, Ukrainians will able to stage that sort of counteroffensive only if they have the necessary weaponry from the international community. Um, so it's really important to continue supporting Ukraine right now, to continue supporting it up until the victory and, and obviously after as well, so it rebuilds. You mentioned the brutal reality of war, Alessia. The determination of the Ukrainian people has obviously been quite extraordinary. Everyone surely has limits. Could you describe for us the mindset in Ukraine right now as we approach spring and the likelihood of another major push by Russia? Do you think that we could reach a point where the Ukrainian people uh, are unable to continue? I think the short answer is no, because it's not an option for us, because the alternative is occupation. The alternative is, um, you know, the, the destruction of the dream and the vision of Ukraine that Ukrainians have been put in place since the 90s and be generations before that, but in particular since 2014, the Maidan revolution, which really, really changed the country. Um, nobody is going to accept living in occupation. The struggle will continue. And one thing that drives that struggle in Ukraine is it, is the defense of your land, is the defense of your home. And I think that should be understandable wherever you are in the world. I mean, it's something we can all relate to. But it's also love. Uh, we, we often think of love as maybe an abstract, romanticized feeling. But the sort of love expressed among Ukrainian citizens that I've seen uh, over the last year is overwhelming. The care that they show for each other, for absolute strangers, um, that they show for for their country, uh, their cities, their villages is is fantastic. And I think if you're driven by that sort of feeling, uh, and if you're driven by the vision of the future, you will you will find a fight until you achieve it. You've prioritised the fight against what you've referred to as fatigue. Uh, let me uh, read something that you said, wrote and wrote last year uh, that I think should be understood by uh, and very influential for our policymakers and decision makers. Uh, you said this, fatigue is a weapon of war. It is directed at those who don't need to run away from bombed out buildings. It is directed at us so we don't even look at images of bombed out buildings and focus instead on how much it will cost us to heat our own homes untouched by bombs. 
Our attention is drawn to the soaring prices in our supermarkets, while Moscow uses the threat of hunger as another weapon of war. The aim of war fatigue is to make us seek ceasefire, not victory. Concessions, not justice. To exit this war without ensuring lasting peace. Such an incredibly powerful, important uh, discussion. Can you take us through the issue of fatigue and why authoritarian regimes and leaders like Putin think they have a stamina advantage over the rest of us? Yes. I think it's absolutely understandable when people get tired of looking at images of war, especially in you know in a country that is very, very far from them, um, both on their mental maps and, and geographically far away as well. What we need to understand is Ukraine fatigue is definitely a weapon of war designed in the Kremlin and directed at, at all of us in the international community. It can be easily fought against um, by understanding that our problems, the rising cost of living, energy, Energy prices shooting up, um, the global security threat that we're all experiencing, informational war that has penetrated our political sphere wherever we are in the democratic world has uh, the same source. And that source is in the Kremlin. And once we understand that, we will hopefully understand that we need to stand in solidarity with Ukrainians. They can't afford to experience fatigue. Um, and nor can we. Because if we succumb to that war fatigue um, and Ukraine fatigue, then we're going to put ourselves at the, in, a, in a very disadvantaged position as well. Uh, really well said. It's uh, such an important topic. And the very excellent uh, Ukraine ambassador to Australia, Vasil Murushenchenko, has been very much focused on that since the day he uh, arrived in Australia uh, in March last year. Alyssa, you've also talked about the fallacy of escalation, a really uh, significant uh, topic that has been discussed around capitals around the world, uh, that in the EU and NATO, uh, they tend to prioritise de-escalation. Um, uh, you have talked about how a priority on de-escalation can in fact incentivise uh, a leader like Putin to carry on that what is needed is a change of mindset from supporting Ukraine as a way to keep Ukraine in the fight to supporting Ukraine to help Ukraine win the fight. Can you explain the message that you're conveying here? Mm, absolutely. Um, we've had eight years of de-escalation or appeasement, I suppose I, we could call it, uh, from 2014 up until uh, 24th of February 2022. And look where it, where it got us. And to be honest, I'd really like to see some uh, some. So genuine soul-searching um, among the international leadership uh, ab about the decisions that were taking place uh, in 2014 and since. The fact that we turned a blind eye to Putin's violation of international law when he simply invaded another sovereign state, when he grabbed uh, territory, when he occupied uh, Crimea, uh, when he started the aggression in eastern Ukraine, and Russia still continued to be perceived as a neutral party in various pseudo uh, peace uh, peace negotiations. And the rest of the international community accepted that state of affairs. Um, they, they continued to trade with Russia. They continued to normalize the violence perpetrated by Russia. And they continued to fund this war, to fund Russia's war through purchases of oil and gas to the point where Putin was able to escalate it. So I, I have not yet uh, heard anybody uh, admit 
uh, essentially complicity in or uh, admit responsibility rather responsibility for the escalation uh, in 2022 because we all have a part to play in appeasing Russia. So we've had the eight years of appeasement. We see where it got us. Let's not fool ourselves anymore. Um, also, when it comes to concessions, so I so frequently hear people say to me, well, Ukrainians should just surrender Crimea, uh, you know, allow Putin to to keep at least something to save face. I'm great that we consider uh, what we need to do to save face of a war criminal. Um, it's, you know, it's a pity to hear such uh, such discussions and also pr prioritize security guarantees for Russia as opposed to security guarantees for Ukraine uh, when it comes to eventual peace negotiations. We forget that uh, allowing war criminal to to gain from committing war crimes is unacceptable. But also allowing Russia to maintain control of Crimea means actually prolonging this war. We might achieve some sort of ceasefire so Russia can regroup, retrain, rearm, and then stage another offensive because Crimea serves, has continued to serve as a platform for the attack for the rest of Ukraine. So it's not an option. Deoccupation of Crimea is vital for Ukraine's uh, prolonged, lasting peace. Uh, really well said and, and couldn't agree more, Alicia. Uh, you talk about uh, people having turned a blind eye to Putin's aggression from uh, 2014 um, and, and even before then, of course, uh, many people do ask why the, the, the Russian public, the Russian people uh, allow so much of this uh, aggression uh, and breaches of international law and breaches of territorial sovereignty uh, to happen. You, uh, I think, have a fairly strong view that this shows the power of propaganda. Um, there's history behind this, uh, that despite the digital age actually increasing the access to information that we all have, authoritarian regimes like Putin's have been able to control the information provided to their own people while also spreading uh, their disinformation globally. Uh, we in Australia, in this region, have a similar challenge with the control the Chinese Communist Party has over the information feed to the Chinese public. You've talked about uh, what you, uh, a great phrase you use, the illusion of greatness uh, that uh, that results from that. Uh, it's uh, one of my favourite lines from uh, Star Wars, the uh, delusions of grandeur. Uh, can you take us through that uh, and if there is a way that we can unmask that illusion? What the Russian leadership successfully did in Russia um, over the last three decades and before that as well and then the Soviet Union too, uh, but especially since, since Putin came to power, is they robbed the Russians of their past by weaponizing it, by specifically focusing on some sort of odd uh, Russian greatness. Um, they robbed them of uh, the present uh, because the, the society is so impoverished that it simply cannot enjoy uh, life. I mean, we see the excitement of the Russian troops uh, at the site of an hotel jar in, in Ukrainian flats that they've been looting. And, you know, the washing machine has become a, a symbol of Russian conquest. It's it's a pathetic uh, but also heartbreaking sight to, to behold. Um, and th they are also robbing them of the future. And I think this is something that the, the Russian society needs to wake up to that if they continue to support this idea of Russian imperialism, uh, of Russian some sort of um, invented greatness that is based 
on oppressing others, in particular sovereign nations around Russia, then they perpetuating the sort of miserable life that the Russian leadership has created for them already. If they want to have a different sort of uh, life in the future, then they need to start making it. Then they need to start creating it. Uh, and they need to absolutely reject the imperialist project and focus on the domestic problems. And believe me, they have plenty. Uh, absolutely. Uh, we've talked about your uh, writing uh, a little bit. The title of the book you published in 2021 is titled The Death of a Soldier Told by His Sister, uh, a very personal title for what is a very personal story. Can you sum up the story you've told in the book and talk about the impact on you, not just personally, but also as an historian? Thank you. I uh, wrote uh, this book, um, much of this book, before the full-scale invasion. It's a story of um, my brother, Volodya, who uh, joined the Ukrainian Armed Forces in 2015 as a volunteer and then was killed in action in Luhansk region in 2017, at the time when nobody remembered that that war was still ongoing. Um, whenever I talked about it uh, outside of Ukraine, people were very much surprised to hear that, A, the war was still very much there and be the people were still being killed, both military and civilians. So for me, that was, I had sort of two uh, main reasons uh, to write that book. One was, was to raise awareness about this war and, and do so through a personal story, through a story that's easy to identify with because we've all experienced grief in one form or another. We can relate to that feeling. Um, and, and, and the second reason was to process my own trauma, the trauma of my own family of losing um, a family member to the this war. I was then approached by uh, a British publisher um, after the full-scale invasion, uh, proposing that I update this uh, this uh, manuscript and, and issue a new edition, and that's what I did. So the book also contains my reflections on how um, Ukraine was discovered uh, just as Russia was trying to wipe it off the map, <laughs> uh, which is ironic and sad. But uh, at the same time, you know, it's it's important that it is being discovered and it does appear on our mental maps now. So it's a combination of sort of... Um, I suppose, more political reflections on, on the way that the international community is perceiving Ukraine, but also very much uh, centered uh, on individual story and experience of grief. Um, and I'm always very touched when people write to me uh, with feedback on the book and, and say that it spoke to them specifically because of this um, theme of grief uh, and that they, you know, they could draw parallels in their own life. Because I think one way to understand the, a war that is far away, um, that perhaps does not touch us immediately, is by hearing human stories that we can relate to. Absolutely. And uh, with your aim of raising awareness, you, you certainly have done that through what is a very personal uh, and powerful story. I encourage uh, all our listeners to read your book, The Death of a Soldier Told by His Sister. Something that I know you are very, very passionate about and we've had uh, a, a very good discussion about uh, is the impact of war on women uh, and uh, the gender implications of war. You wrote a paper a couple of years ago about uh, the war at that time in eastern Ukraine uh, and the relationship to gender it was a very frank argument that we need to confront the less convenient aspects of Ukraine's fight for its sovereignty, including the stereotypes about male heroes and women as supporters. Could you explain your concerns about uh, gender and war and specifically in Ukraine? 
I don't know how to do that in a couple of minutes because it's something that I would prefer to talk about for a whole day. But thank you for for allowing me to speak about this. Um, I suppose one thing that I'd like to point out is the change that's happened in Ukraine since uh, since I wrote that paper. Since the start of this is the start of Russia's war in Ukraine in 2014. Since I wrote that paper and since the full scale invasion, um, and it's the sort of change that I think can also be generalized um, um, and 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 seen more widely in Ukrainian society. Uh, and, and the change comes from the pressure from the civil society to address problematic questions in times of war. The sort of questions that people might think are untimely, like gender equality. You know, we uh, we have heard voices say to us, well, look, let's talk about it after the war. But no, actually, the war is the opportunity for us to make the changes uh, happen. A lot of women joined uh, the Ukrainian armed forces in 2014. And since uh, their service wasn't um, problem-free because there were plenty of restrictions in the Ukrainian armed forces, legal restrictions for their service, but gradually, with um, uh, pressure from civil society, a, f- a volunteer movement, a veteran movement, um, they managed to change both legislation and also attitudes in society. And that's precisely what um, I was discussing in the paper that you're referring to. You know, in the not so long ago, women were very much perceived as performing auxiliary roles, both in the military and in society more widely, sort of they were unsung heroes, invisible. Uh, there's a there's a wonderful advocacy campaign and sociological studies in in Ukraine conducted called Invisible Battalion. Well, I can say with some certainty now that the battalion is no longer invisible, that it's very much visible and it is recognized uh, for the achievements and the participation of women in the war effort. And uh, I'm I'm thrilled to see that women are able to get that recognition, and I think it's going to have a profound effect on gender equality in Ukraine more widely um, after we gain victory. Uh, lovely. It is very good to hear you talk about uh, the invisible battalion no longer being invisible. I completely agree with you that despite the fact that the the uh, what you've described as the brutal re- reality of war and all the suffering that is happening. Uh, the war is also the opportunity to make change, and that is uh, something that everyone should be proud about. What we're seeing uh, Ukraine and the Ukrainians do as they uh, fight uh, against Russia for their own freedom and sovereignty, they are encouraging all of us uh, to uh, support and encourage change. Uh, Alessia, uh, thank you so much for being on the Aspie podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure. I hope that as you take your message uh, around not just Australia but the world, uh, that you have uh, a whole lot of success. And I hope that next time we speak that we can talk about more Ukrainian success. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Turning now closer to home, Dr. Tista Prakash and Dr. Gatra Priyandita discuss the outcomes of the ASEAN Foreign Ministers Meeting in Jakarta. They discuss priorities for Indonesia's chairmanship, including movement on Timor-Leste's accession, as well as Indonesia's approach to Myanmar. Last week, we saw the conclusion of the first gathering of the foreign ministers of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, in Jakarta, kicking off what is set to be another busy year for Indonesia as it chairs ASEAN. What do you think are the priorities for the Indonesian chairmanship of ASEAN this year, Gatra? So I think the short answer is many, many things. Uh, if we look at the press statement released following the last week's uh, foreign minister's retreat, uh, there are around 53 points listed, ranging from negotiations on an ASEAN extradition treaty to expanded cooperation with the Pacific Islands Forum. 
But the guiding objective of the Indonesian chairmanship is likely to be deciphered in the theme, uh, which is ASEAN Matters, Epicentrum of Growth. So I think in many ways, uh, the theme is based on sets of insecurities that the Indonesian political leadership, as well as the political leadership across Southeast Asia, have about ASEAN's place in an age that is not only facing the challenge of great power competition, but also is trying to offer the social and economic benefits to the region's 684 million people. In response to the latter, officials have long been working to deepen economic integration to bolster digital trade, uh, regional economic growth, encourage intramural trade flows, cooperation over uh, supply chain resilience, and so on. Now, these won't entirely be new conversation, but the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change and many other factors, including the Sino-American tech bifurcation, have all really added the impetus for renewed conversations and you know, placed more pressure on governments to address these mutual economic and social concerns. Exactly. And also, may I add the addition of East Timor to the ASEAN collection of states in Southeast Asia is going to be an interesting one to watch for, um, given the fact that since 1997, there hasn't been a single new member of ASEAN. And it'll be interesting to also watch the timeline of accession um, and how that is developed and how ASEAN comes together to sort of agree on what steps East Timor needs to take to be a part of ASEAN. And really the focus of Indonesia in, in sort of being the main Sherpa for this accession, I think will be interesting for us to watch this year as Indonesia chairs the ASEAN presidency. Of course, it's not going to be an easy process given East Timor's economic and political current status and given the fact that it won't be completed in one year. So it may probably not happen in Indonesia's presidency, but I think Indonesia will set the ball rolling for East Timor's accession, which should be completed in two to three years. I think it's it's going to be an interesting year. I, I definitely agree. I think the Indonesian chairmanship will probably place the membership, uh, Timor-Leste membership process high on the agenda. Whenever Indonesian diplomats are in charge of the ASEAN summit, they always try to go for big symbolic goals. Back in 2003, it was really the Bali Concord that kicked off the uh, ASEAN community. Um, in 2011, they also laid the foundations for the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement. Um, right now, you know, Timbo's membership process seems to be the key big thing that they want to kick off as well. But just on the subject, Tista, I mean, you are Aspie's number one fan of Timberlist. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts as to why the membership process has been has seen considerable movement now, especially since Timberlist has been trying to be a member of ASEM for quite a while now. You're absolutely correct because I am the number one Timor-Leste fan um, at Aspie, and perhaps in Australia. But I think on a more serious note, it is very, very intriguing why Timor-Leste is sort of coming to the fray now rather than five years ago. Um, and my analysis shows that I think it is mostly because um, the infrastructure and economic deficiency in East Timor has seen a growth in sort of Chinese interest. And given the fact that China is investing heavily in highways, in deep sea ports, in electricity, so the state grid of Timor-Leste is being built by a Chinese state-owned enterprise, given the fact that China is growing influence in, in Timor-Leste's economy, there is widespread concern in the region, and not just in Southeast Asia, but in Australia, as well as the US, that Timor-Leste could fall very heavily into the Chinese sort of economic influence. So to get 
Timor-Leste into the integrated process of ASEAN would be one way to sort of make it a more balanced region. Um, so essentially, if I were to be an IR nerd, I'd call it a balance of power kind of approach to, to the region. And it's not just ASEAN we see that is focusing on Timor-Leste. It's Australia as well. We saw with the visit of President Horta late last year that there is this almost this increase in connections with the region. And it's not just based on economics. It's based on sort of diplomacy. And um, I think it's only going to get more accelerated this year. And there's, of course, you know, Timor-Leste being one of the biggest challenges. What are the um, other sort of challenges you see facing um, Indonesia as it as it resides as chair of ASEAN this year? So as much as I think the Indonesian chairmanship be most interested in things like post-COVID economic recovery and, and Timor-Leste as, a, as, as, as a topics of discussion, the way I see it, Indonesia's success in ASEAN will really be assessed based on how it manages two big challenges. The first set of challenges are the strategic implications of Sino-American rivalry on Southeast Asia. So the strategic environment the past few years have been very much defined by the strategic competition. And you know, upon assuming the chairmanship last year, uh, President Joko Widodo or Jokowi immediately said that one of his key objectives will be to ensure that ASEAN does not become a proxy to any great powers. Now, that statement has followed a long line of trends uh, that we've seen recently across the region where leaders become a lot more explicit in saying, we don't want to have to choose. And while the Americans and the Chinese have been trying to inform their Southeast Asian counterparts that there is no expectation to choose, there is a growing sense of insecurity that the room for flexibility is eroding anyway. You know, for example, while geopolitics rarely dominate regional conversations on the procurements of ICT equipment, uh, you know, Sino-American technocoupling is raising some concern that Southeast Asian states many of whom utilize Chinese, European, Japanese, American current equipment, may be subject to the negative effects of tech electrification. But beyond, beyond that, Sino-American rivalry also touches upon several major security flashpoints, right? So there's, um, of course, the South China Sea disputes and then the situation in Taiwan. Now, individual states will have individual positions uh, in responding to these kinds of security flashpoints. And this is fine and this is expected, but it can sometimes get problematic for ASEAN diplomats when member states struggle to come up with a collective response to a particular security issue. Now, since 2012, uh, the 2012 ASEAN summit in Phnom Penh, where leaders failed to come up with a joint communique over the South China Sea disputes, ASEAN diplomats have really tried their best to ensure collective responses to major issues. And, and that's been seen as a, as a measurement of success for ASEAN cohesion. Now, the second major challenge facing the region is, of course, the ongoing political turmoil in Myanmar. So since the February 2021 coup, uh, the military junta has continued to employ repressive tactics to clamp down on dissent. ASEAN has responded with a five-point consensus, which has largely failed to be implemented. We can only see these acts of violence continue, I think, especially in light of the recent extension in the state of emergency and the further postponement of any possible elections. Building on Myanmar, what else do you see to happen under Indonesia's chairmanship? Because it's lots is happening in the region. So, so months after the uh, February 2021 uh, coup in Myanmar, ASEAN leaders responded by adopting the five-point consensus, which among other things calls for the cessation of violence and inclusive political dialogue which would include representation from uh, the National Unity Government, or NUG. So that's the, the force that's opposing the junta. As chairs, Brunei in 2021 and Cambodia in 2022 have largely tried, though struggled, and some would say failed, to induce the junta to follow the path laid down by this consensus. Uh, the junta still employs progressive taxes, as I mentioned, and they've also imprisoned Aung San Suu Kyi, the former leader of Myanmar, um, whose associates formed the NUG, to around 33 years in prison. So that's basically life imprisonment. 
as the largest state in ASEAN, there's often very high expectations of what Indonesia can do, especially when it comes to addressing contentious subjects. Thus far, we've already seen Indonesia setting up an office of an ASEAN special envoy on Myanmar in Jakarta to spearhead how ASEAN deals with the crisis. Foreign Minister Retno Marsudi uh, has also committed to engaging all stakeholders in, in, in Myanmar, including perhaps those in the opposition. But the great development that we heard last week was that uh, Indonesia is planning to send a former military general to meet with the Myanmar junta leaders to engage them in talks about democratic transition. And while we don't know who exactly this general would be, there's a lot of talk that it might be Luhut Panjaitan, who is the uh, coordinating minister in charge of maritime affairs and investments in Indonesia, and who people call, uh, you know, uh, the prime minister, really, the, the minister for everything. Um, he's a very effective uh, lieutenant of President Jokowi. Now, sending former military generals to Myanmar has long been part of Indonesia's toolkit to engage with the Myanmar government. And this goes back to even previous administrations. I'm personally quite skeptical that this will result in anything simply because uh, I don't know if the Myanmar junta really sees Indonesia's democratic transition as well as the military's place in, in this new political system as any form of inspiration. So, um, well, you know, I guess we'll have to see. There have been also been recommendations swirling around in Jakarta. Uh, from you know, Indonesia's own intellectual community over what to do. So former Foreign Minister Martin Telegawa has, for example, recommended that Myanmar's empty seat in ASEAN summits be given to the opposition and UG. Uh, we'll have to see whether any arrangement like this can take place. I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical, uh, given that Indonesian officials are overly conscious of the risk that alienating the Myanmar leadership too much will not only detriment any semblance of the peace process, but could also have geopolitical ramifications. I completely agree, especially with your point on cynicism here, because I definitely see that Indonesia has a lot on the table. But I think that there is also we need to have expectation management with Indonesia and what it can achieve and what it really wants to achieve. Given that it is heading for election next year, perhaps it would be in its best interest to maintain a status quo, which I think Cambodia did quite well in its chairmanship last year. Um, and, and really also have a strategic sort of look at where Myanmar is placed geostrategically, right? It has a very sort of it borders India, it borders China and sort of Southeast Asia. So it isn't a very complex geopolitical and perhaps even geoeconomic state right now. And, and given that complexity, it may not be in Indonesia's best interest to sort of um, engage with democratic transitions and those sort of these hefty topics that take decades almost to turn around. So for Indonesia, perhaps it would be best right now to just let things go. And and non-intervention has always been sort of a very, very integral part of the way, not just Southeast Asia, but even India deals or engages with um, Myanmar. So it, it, it the, the geostrategic competition over Myanmar could play a sort of a um, big role in determining which direction Myanmar takes. But speaking of geostrategic competition, um, you mentioned South China Sea um, as, as a major dispute. What are we looking at this year? What can we expect? So I think with so much going on right now in the world, it's it's, it's often easy to forget that um, uh, the South China Sea disputes is still uh, a major security flashpoint. Even in the Indo-Pacific, more attention right now is given to Taiwan, right? Uh, but the past few years, we have continued to see cases of intrusions and kerfuffles, really, between Coast Guards and Navy vessels amongst claimant states in the South China Sea. Vietnam, in particular, has been extending their dredging activities as a way to sort of fortify features in the Spratly Islands. Now, the press statement from last week's meeting between the ASEAN, amongst the ASEAN foreign ministers indicate that Indonesia will continue ahead with the negotiation process on the South China Sea Code of Conduct, which has not made really much progress since 2018 when they released a, a draft text. But realistically, I'm not banking on a Code of Conduct being uh, 
completed this year simply because I doubt that neither China nor ASEAN member states have been able to overcome some of the major impasses in negotiations. So things like um, agreements on geographic scope of the COC or you know a format for a dispute settlement mechanism. What has been interesting developments in the South China Sea happen outside of ASEAN's agreement? Uh, um, so, uh, firstly, I think uh, just months ago, we saw Indonesia and Vietnam conclude uh, talks to demarcate the boundaries of their exclusive economic zone in the South China Sea after 12 years of negotiations. Now, these negotiations are obviously important because it demonstrates that there can be meaningful progress over maritime boundary dispute resolution in the South China Sea. But furthermore, the agreement is also really a rejection of China's claims. As the body of water where there was negotiation partially lies within China's expansive claims, the so-called nine-dash lines or four shots. Now, with Indonesia and Vietnam selling their maritime boundary, they can present a more united front diplomatically when challenging China's claims. Now, the second development concerns the establishment of the ASEAN Coast Guard Forum, which is an initiative that was initially proposed by uh, Indonesia's Maritime Security Agency, or also known as the Coast Guard. Now, the forum really offers a new platform for engagement, including on things like information sharing, as well as a platform for confidence-building measures and perhaps even capacity-building among the institutional bodies who are most at the forefront of the South China Sea disputes um, in ASEAN. It's, it's still very much early days, and we are yet to know uh, what will result from this forum. But it is a good sign that ASEAN member states, many of whom are also claiming each other's bodies of waters, are willing to expand engagement in the field of maritime security. Lots and lots of stuff happening, but I think the key here lies in sort of managing our expectations, what we can expect out of an Indonesian chairmanship. And and there's great power competition on critical issues, but really I think maintaining status quo and sort of non-intervention would be key for Indonesia. And there's lots of elections happening as well this year. <laughs> yes, there are two and a half elections. Um, mm-hmm. So Cambodia will see a transition of power. Hun Sen, Prime Minister Hun Sen, who's been around for decades, will be stepping down. Uh, there will be elections, but the expectation is that Han Manet would be, uh, his son would be prime minister. And Thailand will also have its prime uh, its elections, and Prayuth uh, will probably win it again. Uh, but we will also be seeing campaign season in Indonesia, which I think, uh, I may be extremely biased, but I think is, is the most interesting uh, development in the political space in the region. And, you know, foreign policy is often an extension of domestic politics. And this argumentation is probably most tr- is truest in Southeast Asia. So Australian officials and, and others, um, you know, listening on this podcast should definitely keep an eye on these elections. Absolutely. And and coming from someone who's lived in Jakarta during election season, I think it's it's always the best time to talk to cab drivers about what they think. So if you're ever in a blue um, bluebird, ask the cab driver who he's voting for. On that note, I think this has been a very interesting chat, Gatra, and lots of exciting stuff coming up for Indonesia's presidency. So watch the space. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.